This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Red Room by H.G. Wells. It's read by Simon Vance. The story is copyright 2013, and we'll be discussing it with Simon Vance afterwards. It runs 24 minutes. The Red Room by H.G. Wells I can assure you, said I, that it will take a very tangible ghost to frighten me. And I stood up before the fire with my glass in my hand. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm, and glanced at me askance. Eight and twenty years, said I, I have lived, and never a ghost have I seen as yet. The old woman sat staring hard into the fire, her pale eyes wide open. Aye, she broke in, and eight and twenty years you have lived, and never seen the likes of this house, I reckon. There's a many things to see when one's still but eight and twenty. She swayed her head slowly from side to side. A many things to see and sorrow for. I half suspected these old people were trying to enhance the spectral terrors of their house by this droning insistence. I put down my empty glass on the table and, looking about the room, caught a glimpse of myself abbreviated and broadened to an impossible sturdiness in the queer old mirror beside the china cupboard. Well, I said, if I see anything tonight I shall be so much the wiser, for I come to the business with an open mind. It's your own choosing, said the man with a withered arm once more. I heard the faint sound of a stick and a shambling step on the flags in the passage outside. The door creaked on its hinges as a second old man entered, more bent, more wrinkled, more aged even than the first. He supported himself by the help of a crutch. His eyes were covered by a shade, and his lower lip, half averted, hung pale and pink from his decaying yellow teeth. He made straight for an armchair on the opposite side of the table, sat down clumsily, and began to cough. The man with the withered hand gave this newcomer a short glance of positive dislike. The old woman took no notice of his arrival, but remained with her eyes fixed steadily on the fire. "'I said, it's your own choosing,' said the man with the withered hand, when the coughing had ceased for a while. "'It's my own choosing,' I answered. The man with the shade became aware of my presence for the first time, and threw his head back for a moment and sideways to see me. I caught a momentary glimpse of his eyes, small and bright and inflamed. Then he began to cough and splutter again. "'Why don't you drink?' said the man with the withered arm, pushing the beer towards him. The man with the shade poured out a glassful with a shaking hand that splashed half as much again on the deal table. A monstrous shadow of him crouched upon the wall and mocked his action as he poured and drank. I must confess, I had scarcely expected these grotesque custodians. There is, to my mind, something inhuman in senility, something crouching and atavistic. The human qualities seem to drop from old people insensibly day by day. The three of them made me feel uncomfortable with their gaunt silences, their bent carriage, their evident unfriendliness to me and to one another. 
And that night, perhaps, I was in the mood for uncomfortable impressions. I resolved to get away from their vague foreshadowings of the evil things upstairs. "'If,' said I, "'you will show me to this haunted room of yours, I will make myself comfortable there.' The old man with a cough jerked his head back so suddenly that it startled me, and shot another glance of his red eyes at me from out of the darkness under the shade, but no one answered me. I waited a minute, glancing from one to the other. The old woman stared like a dead body, glaring into the fire with lack-luster eyes. "'If,' I said, a little louder, "'if you will show me to this haunted room of yours, I will relieve you from the task of entertaining me.' "'There's a candle on the slab outside the door,' said the man with the withered hand, looking at my feet as he addressed me. "'But if you go to the red room to-night—' "'This night of all nights,' said the old woman softly, "'you go alone.' "'Very well,' I answered shortly. "'And which way do I go?' "'You go along the passage for a bit,' said he, "'nodding his head on his shoulder at the door, "'until you come to a spiral staircase, "'and on the second landing is a door covered with green bays. "'Go through that and down the long corridor to the end.' and the red room is on your left up the steps. "'Have I got that right?' I said, and repeated his directions. He corrected me in one particular. "'And are you really going?' said the man with a shade, looking at me again for the third time with that queer, unnatural tilting of the face. "'This night of all nights,' whispered the old woman. "'It is what I came for,' I said and moved towards the door. As I did so, the old man with a shade rose and staggered round the table so as to be closer to the others and to the fire. At the door I turned and looked at them, and saw they were all close together, dark against the firelight, staring at me over their shoulders with an intent expression on their ancient faces. "'Good night,' I said, setting the door open. "'It's your own choosing?' said the man with a withered arm. I left the door wide open until the candle was well alight, and then I shut them in, and walked down the chilly, echoing passage. I must confess that the oddness of these three old pensioners in whose charge her ladyship had left the castle, and the deep-toned, old-fashioned furniture of the housekeeper's room in which they foregathered, had affected me curiously in spite of my effort to keep myself as a matter-of-fact phase. They seemed to belong to another age, an older age, an age when things spiritual were indeed to be feared, when common sense was uncommon, an age when omens and witches were credible and ghosts beyond denying. Their very existence, thought I, is spectral, the cut of their clothing, fashions, born in dead brains, the ornaments and conveniences in the room about them even are ghostly, the thoughts of vanished men, which still haunt rather than participate in the world of today. And the passage I was in, long and shadowy, with a film of moisture glistening on the wall, was as gaunt and cold as a thing that is dead and rigid. But with an effort I sent such thoughts to the right about. The long draughty subterranean passage was chilly and dusty, and my candle flared and made the shadows cower and quiver. 
The echoes rang up and down the spiral staircase, and a shadow came sweeping up after me, and another fled before me into the darkness overhead. I came to the wide landing and stopped there for a moment, listening to a rustling that I fancied I heard creeping behind me, and then, satisfied of the absolute silence, pushed open the unwilling baize-covered door and stood in the silent corridor. The effect was scarcely what I expected, for the moonlight coming in by the great window on the grand staircase picked out everything in vivid black shadow or reticulated silvery illumination. Everything seemed in its proper position. The house might have been deserted on the yesterday instead of twelve months ago. There were candles in the sockets of the sconces, and whatever dust had gathered on the carpets or upon the polished flooring was distributed so evenly as to be invisible in my candlelight. A waiting stillness was over everything. I was about to advance, and stopped abruptly. A bronze group stood upon the landing, hidden from me by a corner of the wall, but its shadow fell with marvellous distinctness upon the white panelling, and gave me the impression of someone crouching to waylay me. The thing jumped upon my attention suddenly. I stood rigid for half a moment, perhaps, then, with my hand in the pocket that held the revolver, I advanced, only to discover a Ganymede and eagle glistening in the moonlight. That incident for a time restored my nerve at a dim porcelain Chinaman on a buhl table, whose head rocked as I passed, scarcely startled me. The door of the red room and the steps up to it were in a shadowy corner. I moved my candle from side to side in order to see clearly the nature of the recess in which I stood before opening the door. Here it was, thought I, that my predecessor was found— and the memory of that story gave me a sudden twinge of apprehension. I glanced over my shoulder at the black Ganymede in the moonlight, and opened the door of the red room rather hastily, with my face half-turned to the pallid silence of the corridor. I entered, closed the door behind me at once, turned the key I found in the lock within, and stood with the candle held aloft, surveying the scene of my vigil. The great red room of Lorraine Castle, in which the young duke had died, or, rather, in which he had begun his dying, for he had opened the door and fallen headlong down the steps I had just ascended. That had been the end of his vigil, of his gallant attempt to conquer the ghostly tradition of the place, and never, I thought, had apoplexy better served the ends of superstition. There were other and older stories that clung to the room, back to the half-credible beginning of it all, the tale of a timid wife and the tragic end that came to her husband's jest of frightening her. And looking round that huge, shadowy room with its black window bays, its recesses and alcoves, its dusty brown-red hangings and dark, gigantic furniture, one could well understand the legends that had sprouted in its black corners, its germinating darknesses. My candle was a little tongue of light in the vastness of the chamber. Its rays failed to pierce to the opposite end of the room, and left an ocean of dull red mystery and suggestion, sentinel shadows and watching darknesses beyond its island of light. And the stillness of desolation brooded over it all. I must confess some impalpable quality of that ancient room disturbed me. I tried to fight the feeling down, I resolved to make a systematic examination of the place, and so, by leaving nothing to the imagination, dispel the fanciful suggestions of the obscurity before they obtained a hold upon me. 
After satisfying myself of the fastening of the door, I began to walk round the room, peering round each article of furniture, tucking up the valances of the bed and opening its curtains wide. In one place there was a distinct echo to my footsteps. The noises I made seemed so little that they enhanced rather than broke the silence of the place. I pulled up the blinds and examined the fastenings of the several windows. Attracted by the fall of a particle of dust, I leant forward and looked up the blackness of the wide chimney. Then, trying to preserve my scientific attitude of mind, I walked round and began tapping the oak panelling for any secret opening, but I desisted before reaching the alcove. I saw my face in a mirror. White. There were two big mirrors in the room, each with a pair of sconces bearing candles, and on the mantel-shelf, too, were candles in china candlesticks. All these I lit, one after the other. The fire was laid, an unexpected consideration from the old housekeeper, and I lit it to keep down any disposition to shiver, and when it was burning well I stood round with my back to it and regarded the room again. I had pulled up a chintz-covered armchair and a table to form a kind of barricade before me. On this lay my revolver, ready to hand. My precise examination had done me a little good, but I still found the remoter darkness of the place and its perfect stillness too stimulating for the imagination. The echoing of the stir and crackling of the fire was no sort of comfort to me. The shadow in the alcove at the end of the room began to display that undefinable quality of a presence, that odd suggestion of a lurking, living thing that comes so easily in silence and solitude and to reassure myself, I walked with a candle into it, and satisfied myself that there was nothing tangible there. I stood that candle upon the floor of the alcove and left it in that position. By this time I was in a state of considerable nervous tension, although to my reason there was no adequate cause for my condition. My mind, however, was perfectly clear. I postulated, quite unreservedly, that nothing supernatural could happen— and to pass the time I began stringing some rhymes together, Inglesby fashion, concerning the original legend of the place. A few I spoke aloud, but the echoes were not pleasant. For the same reason I also abandoned, after a time, a conversation with myself upon the impossibility of ghosts and haunting. My mind reverted to the three old and distorted people downstairs, and I tried to keep it upon that topic. The sombre reds and greys of the room troubled me. Even with its seven candles, the place was merely dim. The light in the alcove flaring in a draught and the fire flickering kept the shadows and penumbrae perpetually shifting and stirring in a noiseless, flighty dance. Casting about for a remedy, I recalled the wax candles I had seen in the corridor, and with a slight effort, carrying a candle and leaving the door open, I walked out into the moonlight and presently returned with as many as ten. These I put in the various knick-knacks of china with which the room was sparsely adorned, and lit and placed them where the shadows had lain deepest, some on the floor, some in the window recesses, arranging and rearranging them until at last my seventeen candles were so placed that not an inch of the room but had the direct light of at least one of them. It occurred to me that when the ghost came I could warn him not to trip over them. The room was now quite brightly illuminated, there was something very cheering and reassuring in these little silent streaming flames, and to notice their steady diminution of length offered me an occupation and gave me a reassuring sense of the passage of time. Even with that, however, 
the brooding expectation of the vigil weighed heavily enough upon me. I stood watching the minute hand of my watch creep towards midnight. Then something happened in the alcove. I did not see the candle go out. I simply turned and saw that the darkness was there, as one might start and see the unexpected presence of a stranger. The black shadow had sprung back to its place. "'By Jove!' said I, aloud, recovering from my surprise. "'That draught's a strong one!' taking the matchbox from the table, I walked across the room in a leisurely manner to relight the corner again. My first match would not strike, and as I succeeded with the second, something seemed to blink on the wall before me. I turned my head involuntarily and saw that the two candles on the little table by the fireplace were extinguished. I rose at once to my feet. "'Odd,' I said. "'Did I do that myself, in a flash of absent-mindedness?' I walked back, relit one, and as I did so, I saw the candle in the right sconce of one of the mirrors wink and go right out, and almost immediately its companion followed it. There was no mistake about it. The flames vanished as if the wick had been suddenly nipped between a finger and thumb, leaving the wick neither glowing nor smoking, but black. While I stood gaping, the candle at the foot of the bed went out, and the shadows seemed to take another step towards me. "'This won't do,' said I, and first one and then another candle on the mantel-shelf followed. "'What's up?' I cried, with a queer high note getting into my voice somehow. At that the candle on the corner of the wardrobe went out, and the one I had relit in the alcove followed. "'Steady on,' I said. "'Those candles are wanted,' speaking with a half-hysterical facetiousness and scratching away at a match the while for the mantel-candlesticks. My hands trembled so much that twice I missed the rough paper of the matchbox. As the mantel emerged from darkness again, two candles in the remoter end of the room were eclipsed. But with the same match I also relit the larger mirror candles and those on the floor near the doorway, so that for the moment I seemed to gain on the extinctions. But then in a noiseless volley there vanished four lights at once in different corners of the room, and I struck another match in quivering haste and stood hesitating whither to take it. As I stood undecided, an invisible hand seemed to sweep out the two candles on the table. With a cry of terror I dashed at the alcove, then into the corner, and then into the window, relighting three as two more vanished by the fireplace, and then, perceiving a better way, I dropped the matches on the iron-bound deed-box in the corner and caught up the bedroom candlestick. With this I avoided the delay of striking matches, but for all that the steady process of extinction went on and the shadows I feared and fought against returned and crept in upon me, first a step gained on this side of me, then on that. I was now almost frantic with the horror of the coming darkness, and my self-possession deserted me. I leaped, panting from candle to candle in a vain struggle against that remorseless advance. I bruised myself in the thigh against the table. I sent a chair headlong. I stumbled and fell and whisked the cloth from the table in my fall. My candle rolled away from me, and I snatched another as I rose. Abruptly this was blown out as I swung it off the table by the wind of my sudden movement, and immediately the two remaining candles followed. But there was light still in the room, a red light that streamed across the ceiling and staved off the shadows from me. The fire! Of course, I could still thrust my candle between the bars and relight it. 
I turned to where the flames were still dancing between the glowing coals and splashing red reflections upon the furniture, made two steps towards the grate, and incontinently the flames dwindled and vanished. The glow vanished, and reflections rushed together and disappeared, and as I thrust the candle between the bars, darkness closed upon me like the shutting of an eye, wrapped about me in a stifling embrace, sealed my vision and crushed the last vestiges of self-possession from my brain. And it was not only palpable darkness, but intolerable terror. The candle fell from my hands. I flung out my arms in a vain effort to thrust that ponderous blackness away from me, and lifting up my voice, screamed with all my might once, twice, thrice. Then I think I must have staggered to my feet. I know I thought suddenly of the moonlit corridor, and with my head bowed and my arms over my face made a stumbling run for the door. But I had forgotten the exact position of the door, and I struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed. I staggered back, turned, and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furnishing. I have a vague memory of battering myself thus to and fro in the darkness, of a heavy blow at last upon my forehead, of a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age, of my last frantic effort to keep my footing, and then I remember no more. I opened my eyes in daylight. My head was roughly bandaged, and the man with a withered hand was watching my face. I looked about me, trying to remember what had happened, and for a space I could not recollect. I rolled my eyes into the corner and saw the old woman, no longer abstracted, no longer terrible, pouring out some drops of medicine from a little blue phial into a glass. "'Where am I?' I said. "'I seem to remember you, and yet I cannot remember who you are.' They told me, then, and I heard of the haunted red room as one who hears a tale. "'We found you at dawn,' said he, "'and there was blood on your forehead and lips.' I wondered that I had ever disliked him. The three of them in the daylight seemed commonplace old folk enough. The man with the green shade had his head bent as one who sleeps. It was very slowly I recovered the memory of my experience. "'You believe now,' said the old man with a withered hand, "'that the room is haunted?' He spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder, but as one who condoles with a friend. "'Yes,' said I. "'The room is haunted. "'And you have seen it. "'And we who have been here all our lives have never set eyes upon it, "'because we have never dared. "'Tell us, is it truly the old Earl who—' "'No,' said I. "'It is not. "'I told you so.' said the old lady, with the glass in her hand. "'It is his poor young countess who was frightened. "'It is not,' I said. "'There is neither ghost of earl nor ghost of countess in that room. "'There is no ghost there at all. "'But worse, far worse, something impalpable.' "'Well,' they said. "'The worst of all the things that haunt poor mortal men,' said I. "'And that is—' in all its nakedness, fear, fear that will not have light nor sound, that will not bear with reason that deafens and darkens and overwhelms, it followed me through the corridor. It fought against me in the room. I stopped abruptly. There was an interval of silence. My hand went up to my bandages. 
The candles went out, one after another, and I fled. Then the man with a shade lifted his face sideways to see me, and spoke. That is it, said he. I knew that was it. A power of darkness, to put such a curse upon a home. It lurks there always. You can feel it even in the daytime, even on a bright summer's day, in the hangings, in the curtains, keeping behind you however you face about. In the dusk it creeps in the corridor and follows you, so that you dare not turn. It is even as you say. Fear itself is in that room. Black fear. And there it will be. So long as this house of sin endures. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Luke Burridge. I'm Brian Alexander. And I'm Simon Vance. And we're going to be talking about The Red Room by H.G. Wells, which we've all just heard. I got a question for you. This is a, I've been, I have many questions about the story, but what do you guys think? Is there any supernatural elements in this story at all? Maybe. <laughs> Again, I mean, it, does, it depends if someone's just listened to this. What, are, they, are they thinking that it's H.G. Wells and it should be science fictional or more rational than a, than a horror story? Why, are you questioning the genre of the story? Well, I think I think that the story is questioning the genre. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's what the story is doing. Is is it saying gothic fiction? Oh yeah, that's cool. But we all know that's not real. Except kind of it is, and I think that's what the story's saying. Well, people often talk about this as a deconstruction of the gothic, and I think that's right for the 1890s. I think it makes all kinds of sense. I mean, one way of looking at it is this is the ultimate psychological horror story. You know, we talk about horror stories emphasizing suspense and mental tension rather than gore as psychological horror stories, but this one really is. It takes all the apparatus of gothic horror and then collapses it down to a single mental state of fear at the end. So it's a kind of psychoanalysis of horror, if you will. Hmm. What do you think, Simon? You're the the guy who voiced it. Yeah, I I agree. I I think it's um I I think there's uh it's about what we do to ourselves rather than any external actual being or creature the, the the classic sort of horror monster and so on there isn't one here it really is what the, the position we put ourselves in which is which is what most, most horror stories really come down to is, is that we scare ourselves rather than necessarily anything else uh you know in, in reality it's what we do to ourselves when you go into a dark room and you imagine things when you wake in the middle of the night and your your clothes horse looks like a creature approaching i mean we all have memories of that as children and i think that's exactly what this does i mean there's some suggestion at the end you know whether so long as this house of sin endures um mm. that there's something else that's involved but but it um it really comes back to i think the initial thing in the story is that the the the, the husband's pretended to scare his wife or wanted to scare his mm. wife and and that sort of began something this spookiness about the room and uh, it's hard to 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 pull yourself away from that you know to get out of that i'm actually surprised he didn't go in during the daytime i mean that he chose to go at night i think he was an idiot <laughs> Well, there's also yeah, some very. I would have checked out first, but this happens in like every movie now. You always, see, like you say, it's the clothes horse that looks like a monster. Every movie has the thing which 
looks like a, a nasty thing and turns out to be a mundane thing. You know, it's it's just totally standard in that way now. So. There's um, there's some very interesting stuff that is reflecting against the the lack of supernatural. But that, I mean, what happened to those candles going out like like that? I mean, if if it is if there are no ghosts, which I'm thinking is the right way of looking at it, um, what's putting out the candles? Just drafty room. I have a theory. <laughs> The, okay. When it says, Simon just asked, you know, it's this house of sin. What is the sin? And uh, one thing, which I'm probably, I'll, I'll voice it anyway, um, is the idea that the, how, the sin is the old people continuing to scare people, whoever turns up. <laughs> yeah. And now, now they're into it. It's actually the candles. The candles not, aren't rigged. It's just that they're really, really bad candles. And this might have gone back to one of the first ideas, you know, was a, oh, the man wanted to scare his wife. And it was actually, um, you know, he, he likes the candles. I'm thinking there's either maybe not so much maybe a drug in the candles, but something, you know, to do with the candles. But they just go out. Maybe there's breaks in the wick. You know, you, you light them. And they say right. he goes out and he's constantly trying to relight they're, them. They're trick candles. Maybe it's just trick candles, you know. I mean, that's what I, you know, I was talking to my girlfriend about it earlier. And she was like, I don't understand. I didn't listen to the story. I was like, yeah, but I think it might be trick candles. So it is, it is of course... Everything is internal. The fear is completely internal. But one theory could be that the old people sit standing, sitting around are like, mm, yeah, well, I wouldn't go in there if I were you. And they're all winking to each other behind his back, maybe. It's a, it's well, a Scooby-Doo story. <laughs> I, I, don't, yes, I don't think it's that. But that is one way to read it. But I, th- right. I think, don't you think, that, that when you're in a, a situation where you're scared, I mean, in these situations, when things happen... What am I trying to say? It's like, uh, you know, you, 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 you bump into something and then suddenly three other things happen and you've stumbled over something, you bumped into something else and you're just having an, a clumsy time. I can remember one Christmas setting up Christmas lights and I can't tell you how many Christmas lights I trod on accidentally. And I could have said, oh, my God, there's something going on here. But it's just it, I, I think the guy was in the room and it's his observations. But I think perhaps he's moving around the room and getting more and more scared, ended up blowing some of the candles out. Yes, some candles went out at the other end of the room. That may be coincidence. But but that his his whole fear just created this this situation where things just kept going wrong. I mean, he, it, it, there is some element, you know, the fire goes out and so on and so forth. But it's it's really this is him telling that story. You uh, you know, is he an authentic uh, you know teller of the tale? Is he putting words into it that that you know that if if an, a neutral observer saw that, would they have seen the same thing that he saw? But he's seeing it through his vision of fear. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think there's a guy going slightly crazy in a room by himself, <laughs> mm-hmm. psyching I, himself out. There's other holes yeah. in Luke's theory. I mean, one of the things would be that if if those people did this a year ago, they killed the Duke who was previously in there, right? He, he I mean, this joke went a little bit too far, and these these three old folks are kind of. You know, <laughs> bastards. But, but, really. but it wasn't me. It wasn't me who brought up the idea of. Um, someone playing a trick on somebody else and trying to scare someone. That's where the original story comes from with the, the Duke. No, what? No. Anyway, someone trying yeah, to yeah, kill his, right. well, not to kill his, but trying to frighten his, his wife and the trick went right. wrong. Yes. And from there, it starts off with a, 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 a fake scare. It's true. It mm-hmm. With a fake scare. There's some, there's some very other interesting things to support this idea that it's, a, a, you know, it's all in his head. One of the striking things to me is how he describes the old people at the beginning. He's, mm. he's almost contemptuous of them. Uh-huh. He's certainly he sees things in their behaviors that are not actually shown by their actions. It's just the way he describes them. Like 
he thinks that the two men hate each other. And then at the end, they're much more kindly and get, you know, and he sort of dismisses his earlier concerns about their, their, um, attitudes. And I mean, the way he describes the, them at the beginning, they're almost subhuman. Yes, they're yeah, all. But then he does it in daylight. Yeah, in the daylight after they're nursing his wounds, he's he's like, well, they're not so bad. Right after they're being nice to him. I mean, in the beginning, they're mm-hmm. they're he calls them distorted at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all crouching. Warm, crouching. They're all deficient. You know, all two of them have their eyes uh, covered or obscured. They're ugly. He really disdains them, and some of them are red. Um, you know, yeah, the man with the with the shade. I, is that like a? I'm thinking like a poker shade. Is that what? You well, know, like it, those it, it is. But here's the here's the nice thing about this. In the beginning, it's just a shade. So you know, you have you think among other things, a shadow, right? But, a ghost. Yeah. But at the end, when you get to it, uh, all their colors are different. Uh, she gives him a uh, uh, drops from a blue file. Now his uh, shade is green. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all non-red, you know, and right. it's all bright. It's just a nice little little subtle touch, um, but they are truly monstrous and awful in the beginning. I I'm, I've been toying with the interpretation of this that this is a um, a story about generational uh, transfer that uh, you've got these three old folks who are the representations of gothic horror and superstition, and uh, and they never give up, which is you know why you have that last <laughs> line, that last paragraph actually, right. There will be so long as this house of sin endures. Ah. But but then but then the the narrator is the rising generation of science, uh, and we see this in the beginning because his age is highlighted, which is weird. Yes. Uh, well, I think that I think there's something special going on there. Um, the the year this story came out was the uh, 28 years after um, H.G. Wells was born. Mm. And of course, they're kind of same kind of person in the sense that um, they're both uh, they don't believe in um, the supernatural. I mean, that's not what he writes about. He writes about science. He was trained as a scientist. Right. Um, and even though this is a gothic horror story, it's kind of a subversion of that mm-hmm. in in the, the character. I mean, he goes in there with a gun. Um, but he also goes in there saying, um, "I'm." How is he reflected in the mirror? He's reflect the first time. He's reflected in the mirror as impossibly, impossibly sturdy, impossibly sturdy. Uh, he mm. has an impossible sturdiness. And I was thinking, like, he can't be moved, right? He, his, his belief in his, you know, system of rules is. Uh, immovable, and yet he's got that gun. What's that gun for? To shoot the ghost? <laughs> it's, <laughs> and it's, it's never he's used. Play a trick on him. He's, he's gonna. If someone comes out and is playing a trick on him, or, or something like that, because he knows that somebody <laughs> somebody died in there before. So he's thinking, if somebody can be killed in here, um, I want to have some protection against anything that might be able to kill me, even if it's a trick. And I think at the end, this guy is still believing in his own belief system. He's like, no, I, it, there wasn't anything supernatural except the kind of unknowableness of your own mind you know i think he mm. i think he i don't think anything in the room changes his mind his uh, of his you know his materialistic or scientific or whatever outlook on life yeah i agree yeah he comes out he talks about you know what the worst things that haunt poor mortal men and that is in all its nakedness fear he doesn't come out saying there is a ghost there 
He, mm-hmm. he admits that it's yeah. fear. I find it interesting that last that that, that H. G. Wells left that final paragraph in because I think it, you know the guy comes out with the conclusion that it's fear. But but mm-hmm. the man with a shade who says that's it, a power of darkness, and that holds so long as the house of sin, yeah. he makes it something else. And I'm I'm not sure why that's there other than to make it more gothic or something. You know that less I, scientific. If it was just oh, we both. I think if it was just, oh, it's just fear, it's just, there isn't anything mysterious, it would have been a bit too cut and dry, a bit too preachy, well, not so much preachy, mm-hmm. but a bit too much like, uh, like no, this really is the only thing, but to have another character have the final word, and it just goes, or is it? You know, <laughs> that's what you got at the end of like, or is it just fear, you know? Well, that's yeah. what, and that's I think that's why we're talking about this story, because if it was, I think if there wasn't a last paragraph, we'd just be like, oh yeah, he, he, he was just defeated by his own fear and then like but the right. house of sin and he's like oh well, there's something we missed what is the house of sin what is going on there well i i have i have a very very dark reading of what that might be and it i was thinking about it when i was reading the story uh with you know pencil in hand you know sort of looking at the words that i there's a few words in there like bays i don't know what bays is i guess it's some material yeah uh, there's yeah. a few words in there and then um I was thinking also about Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, which is, mm. comes a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. And that is a story uh, I, I, was, I mentioned to Eric uh, Rabkin that we were going to be talking about this. And, and he said, you know, there's probably a, maybe there's a connection there. And that just got me to thinking about, you know, the creepy thing that's going on in The Turn of the Screw is that something, some evil relationship happened earlier uh, between the... I don't know, governor's help or whoever it was, and the children. Uh-huh. And it's almost like whatever that relationship was, it was evil. And then I noticed in this story, um, there's a statue on this on the uh-huh. winding staircase, and it's Ganymede, Ganymede with Zeus. an eagle. Yeah, Zeus as an eagle. And, of course, it just seems innocuous if you don't know the symbology, but... Uh, that's Ganymede's being kidnapped by Zeus to be his quote unquote cupbearer. Yep. Which is a euphemism for uh, yeah for um, yeah evil sexual relations between adults and children. But when you look at all the art for it, one of the <clears throat> things that's amazing is the art is all uh, very pro homoerotic. The the art you know always betrays Ganymede as a beautiful beautiful boy and uh, the the bird as very muscled and sensuous. I mean, it's very... Mm-hmm. Um, it's, well, the, very the Greeks cute. loved it. They thought it was great. Well, it's not just the Greeks, though. I mean, you look at a lot of I Renaissance mean, art, and, um, it's true. you know, it's not... now. But when, when Wells, or whoever the protagonist is, sees it, it scares him. Yes. Um, There's also a Chinaman, which which I guess is like a, a, a feeling of peril at the time, but not... doesn't... It, it, it's 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 just a it's the only other piece of decoration I think that is, uh, you know, like statuary or anything that's mentioned. Uh-huh. It, it, in the in the um, what we find out is the housekeeper's room. Later in the story, we find out that the room they were in was the housekeeper's room. That room is filled with all sorts of old-fashioned ornaments. Their their clothing is is fashioned in dead brains. It's like everything is 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 um, Old and yucky. Well, so I'm thinking of that generational interpretation, you know, because it's it's that's how we get that's how it's told. You know, we're really it, it emphasizes that. 
Um, and that's why we had that final paragraph, because the old generation hasn't passed away. It's still there. It's still working. It's still doing things. And after all, he is weak at the end. He is debilitated. And even these grotesque, debilitated old people are strong enough to help him. So, you know, you have these two held together in tension. One will pass first, but... It's, it's, it was kind of curious to me why they weren't three women. You know, it's, yeah. it's almost yeah, yeah, like yeah. the... <laughs> Uh, the Norns, three sort the of thing. yeah, the three Norns and and such, but they all have a disability. I think the woman is blind. I think that's what we're supposed to take from that is that she's always staring to the fire, wide eyed, with pallid eyes. Yeah, uh, either blind or you know with cataracts or something like that. And the the, the one, the first man, he has a withered arm, mm-hmm. and the second man has a, uh, a damaged leg. Mm-hmm. And of course, his eyes are always covered with. And when you see them, they're they're bloodshot. And he or has something. a bad cough, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And a, and a, trem- a tremendous tremor. Right. He, he pours in uh, a, a certain amount of liquid, and 150 percent of the liquid that he poured in is spilled in the pouring process. Yeah. His teeth are ruined. Yeah. And and his shadow is mocking him. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 beautiful writing, and it's it's just like in that gothic tradition. Mm-hmm. But it's it's um, I think it is designed to undercut the very thing it's it's doing. Well, if we see this as a, a kind of pro science or um, what uh, Montague Summers called the gothic expliqué school, then these guys are deliberately monstrous. I mean, they're described as monsters. They're grotesque. Yeah. You know, they're not quite human. They're crouching, atavistic, inhuman. Um, and we're supposed to dislike them. And even at the end, that last paragraph reminds us that they're just wrong. Um, mm. And you know, it's almost a kind of youth, you know, pro-youth, pro-science um, story. I, I can't, yeah, I, I can't get away from that. Um, that that really. There's another way of looking at it too. You know, you mentioned the old woman staring at the light. Um, mm-hmm. There's this you know, interesting dynamic of um, fire and shadow. I mean, that's the whole mm-hmm. dynamic of the story. Mm-hmm. And you get that from the first line. You know, he stands up erect mm-hmm. before the fire. And, you know, he's able to, that's what he's associated with. And, you know, and of course, there's a long, long Western tradition of fire equals knowledge, going back mm-hmm. to, you know, Prometheus and going back to uh, Saul on the road to Tarsus. Um, this is something Eric Rabkin is, is very focused on. And uh, he's got that. He's allied with light. And uh, darkness overwhelms him, but he is still able, in the light of day, to see this rationally. But the the, the light also causes all those shadows that distort and twist and and frighten the crap out of him. Right? Yes, he and says he says that I put a put a candle in every point of the room, so mm-hmm. there was not a single point of the room which wasn't lit by at least some candlelight. You it's know? like science trying to explain yes. the entire yeah, universe, right? My, my first thought was, what a fire trap, but, but also... Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of oh, scary. I was, like, when I was listening to this story, I was convinced he was going to shoot himself with his gun or something that's like that. Uh, right. this, this, ended, this ended a lot better, well, a lot better for the young man uh, than I thought it could have ended. I mean, it's you know, it's a, I'm not saying it's a bad ending, but like in my head, I was running through so many other things that could have gone wrong there. Yeah. I, I like what he's talking. You're talking about the likes of uh, science, and and of course, as he progresses through the room, uh, you know, time, more time spent in the room, it gets darker and darker. So ignorance returns, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, ignorance wins out in the end, and you come back to the basic fear. 
Well, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say it's ignorance that wins. I think it's more like, like he says, human nature wins, like mm. the nakedness. Yeah. I don't think he's ignorant uh, ever because he, no. he kind of self know he knows what he's doing. Well, but, but he is, but the sense of ignorance. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, that we don't we don't know what's in the shadow, and that's what scares us is is not knowing right. mm-hmm. what's in the shadow. That is a kind of yeah. ignorance. Yeah, and then it becomes the fear because fear. I mean, that that sentence is you know fear darkens, mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. you know, fear deafens. Uh, what is this man doing in this place to begin with? It seems to me like he's come to disprove the ghost. Right. No, I don't think so. He, I don't he's think the he new has. lord, isn't he? Isn't he the new... It, that's, well, that's the other option, is that he's like he's like the replacement hound of the Baskervilles. Baskerville. Yeah. How would he be the new lord? What evidence do we have for that? Uh, didn't it say somewhere? He's sleeping in the room. <laughs> no, I think he did say somewhere. Now I've got the book here in front of me. I'll <laughs> try and find it. But I think he mentioned something like that. I know I'm I'm the inheritor of the place or something like that. He says my my previous the previous uh, occupant or is, uh-huh. it's something. It was the ladyship. Very, I think it says it was. The yeah, he ladyship. talks about her ladyship and how kind she is to let these old people stay on or something like that. Well, the caretakers. The, uh, yeah, the caretakers. Yeah. The three old pensioners in whose charge her ladyship left the castle. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's it's either he's like. I mean, he doesn't have to sleep in that room, right? I don't think he was going to sleep in the room. But uh, oh, I think that was the point. Uh, wasn't it? Yeah, I think he was going to. Yeah, I think he was ah, going to stay the night. Yeah, he was going to stay the oh, night. Yes, and I never expected him to sleep. I thought he was going to keep watch for the whole night. Not, I mean, mm-hmm. he was going to sure be he... in there. He was going to be in there until after midnight, I think, because he says, I need to be here, and midnight was approaching and things. I think it said that at some point. But it's, it's strange. He never he's obviously explained. been there for a while, because he says, and I stood up before the glass, no, stood up before the fire with the glass in my hand. That's like the first line. Um, There's but, actually three mirrors, I should also point out, in this story. There's two in that room, mm-hmm. and one down in the, uh, the yeah. housekeeper's room. Just like there's three... Um, Three housekeepers. Not to confess, when I heard there were two mirrors in the room, I thought that this would be uh, that they were facing each other, and we would have that mise on the beam experience, right? Uh-huh. Um, no, the the one word that that makes me wonder about the lordship is uh, where he uses the word predecessor. Yeah, and, and I couldn't tell. You know, is it simply a chronological? He was the guy in the room before me, or is it lineal? You know, it's, I, I it's, think that was the feeling I got when I. That's why I said I think he's the next mm-hmm. Earl or something, because usually you refer to the predecessor, not necessarily as the owner of the house, but but somebody you 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 are the next in line. Mm-hmm. Since there's no evidence, it's your own choosing. Yes. Which <laughs> <laughs> the young duke, the young duke was his predecessor, so maybe he's the the next the duke, duke or something like that. Yeah, cousin, that was my like feeling. That. Yeah, that was my sense. A cousin. But I, I didn't feel that they had any close relation. I didn't feel that the 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 eye, the first person I had any close relation to the people there. I mean, I, I understand how he could be the new lord or the new duke or something, but it didn't it didn't feel that way to me. It, it felt like he was like a city man come out to the uh, yeah. Out to the it, country. it feels like H.G. Wells has gone to a house to see the ghost. Right. Well, this is mm-hmm. a big deal in the in the 1890s. You know, this is the age of the psychic society. You know, and the, mm-hmm. all these people. You know, Conan Doyle gets into this, and uh, people, Harry Houdini is on the other side of that, right? Right. Well, remember he leaves his wife that message, right? You know, she's gonna. He has a secret message that uh, right. he'll transmit if he manages to become a ghost, right? No, but Houdini was very much against spiritualism. He was. He. Oh no, no, that, that was that, 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 that was his point. Is he was saying 
if you want to see if if any of these this these people who claim okay. I'm dead. I thought you meant he was uh, on the other side too. I will have a special message oh. for you. Yeah, and you meant he was on the other side to HG Wells. I think HG Wells is more on on yeah. Houdini's side. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. But, but there, there is this sort of public debate as to what 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 value this yeah. new spiritualism has. And this is this is like it is not the end of the Gothic tradition, but it's certainly near the end. It oh, felt very modern to me, though. I mean, I read this, and this could have been, um, except for you know someone just happening to have a revolver in their hand. Um, it could be written about any place where there's just not electricity yet. It felt very like the 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 language felt far more modern to me than a lot of this Gothic horror. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think you did the Pit and the Pendulum a, a while ago, reading you know, that. And, that and is very to that and then listening to this, it was like there was 200 years between them rather than... Yeah. You, well, actually, I don't know how much time there is between wow. them. Um, wow, there's only 50, yeah. Yeah, it's 50 yeah. years. It felt, this felt like it could have been written 20, 20 years ago about that time rather than 100 years ago. Well, you think mm-hmm. about the great, the great contemporary of this piece is Dracula, which comes out a few months later. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Dracula is that wonderful combination of high-tech and gothic... You know, you've got Dracula in his castle, and you know, which is this classic ur-Gothic um, structure. But he's using Kodak photos to look at his new estate. You know? um, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, now I, mm. I I mean when you the detailed description in the middle of the story of him walking down to the room, I, I was I was fascinated by that. I mean, that's because I I do a lot of work in the Gothic, and this is all great for me. I mean, it's a subterranean passage. Um, so yeah, the hallway is is covered in in water. There's water all over the walls and floor. Yeah, I wish Eric were here because because he's a big Freudian, and so going through it, that's <laughs> a wet passage. You know, uh, he he'd love this, but um, but it was also uh, the description was interesting because it's really meticulous. In fact, we almost get more description of the hallway than we do of the room, and it seems very much a kind of forensic description. You know, there it was. Um, there's a film of moisture. It was gone and cold as a thing that's rigid, but you know it's chilly, dusty. Here are the shadows. Here's the table that's Buell. There's a dim china porcelain. I mean, it's really uh, analytical. Very well. If if we're thinking Poe, it's not Pit and the Pendulum. It's the detective stories here. Right. Yeah. And it feels a lot more like that, doesn't it? And then when you learn that one of the people dies by falling down into this hallway, that's kind of you know, again, it feels like you know uh, this is this isn't Mulder, this is Scully. <laughs> so uh, one of the things, uh, is, Simon, you did a version of Dracula, didn't you? I've done a couple. I did an original. I did a, the unabridged, complete single voice a long oh, time ago, awesome. and then I just did the recent one with uh, that was multi-voice, and I voiced Jonathan Harker's notes, letters, and things. Did didn't you, you do Fangland as well, which is sort of a modern version? Fangland. I probably did. I've done so many books, and I hate to say it, <laughs> but a lot like of them a I forget. Minute, a 60 Minutes writer uh, wrote, rewrote yes. it as like a 60 minute story, yeah. sort of. And that was actually fairly interesting. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't mean to read it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't actually, to be perfectly honest, don't, I remember the name, but I can't remember the details of the story. So uh, it's, it's basically, yeah. it's exactly like, uh, it, I think it's like somebody said, I love Dracula. I'm going to rewrite it as a story mm-hmm. for 60 minutes set in the modern era. And it, so it's, it's letters back and forth, but from, uh, or emails, I guess, from somebody. <laughs> right, in, I think I do. Mark, yeah, yeah, it's coming people, back slowly. <laughs> people have updated it, it, it's the exact same plot as Dracula. <laughs> right. People have updated uh, Dracula a lot. Um, 
Fred Saberhagen did a, a classic version in the 70s called the uh, Dracula Tapes, um, which uh, Anne Rice more or less steals from. Um, but which, which brings us to this uh, stone tape, which I want to talk about. Oh, good. Oh, good. I, so I, awesome. I didn't get a chance to watch that. I've been oh, too busy. Luke. It's an hour you and a half or something. It's like another movie, and I was watching Terminator 2. Well, I have to say, I, I haven't watched it. I haven't watched it recently. I, I watched it in 1972, um, and I still remember it vividly. So when you tweeted the title, I thought, "Oh my God, that's it!" So I went to look for it, and I, I tried to download it, but, but couldn't do it. It's on YouTube. So no, I haven't watched it either. But um, well, I spent uh, two years trying to get a copy because I couldn't oh. buy one in the states. So there is one BitTorrent seed in the world. And I, I was, I was wherever I went. This took months and months. I would download like a bite by bite, you know. This, <laughs> and then finally, I got the whole thing and watched it. And I was just blown away. Yeah, I've read yeah. about. I've never it. heard of it until a couple weeks ago. Well, and then... Nigel Neal is 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 unknown yeah. in the U.S. and he's this great That's writer. That's right. Huge in England with the Quatermass experiment yeah. and things like that. Yeah. 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 And you can't. Well, you, it's hard to get queer mass. The and of course, I was I was young in those. I mean, seventy two. I was six, sixteen or something like that. So it was oh. quite just the right age. <laughs> I think it's very connected to this story, and it, I mean, it, it it could be the same castle almost. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the timing's not perfect, but uh, Lorraine Castle, as far as I know, is not a real castle. I don't know where that one was supposed to be, or where this one in the stone tapes was. It's called Lorraine Lorraine Castle. Lorraine Castle, yeah, uh, but it's not, it's not in Lorraine, no, because no, they're all in English, right? Yeah, yeah, and there's more than one castle in Lorraine, so yeah. it's not true. Like, yeah, I don't think this is a real castle. So it's that Poe-like thing of generic European castle or Hammer yeah. Horror, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, it might be just a manor house. In the in the case of um, of the stone tape, the idea there is very similar in that. There's a bunch of skeptics who don't believe there's a ghost, um, and yet they're haunted by it, and yet there is no ghost. And ultimately, there's no ghost, and yet there is a ghost. Right. Mm-hmm. Because somebody, people die in there, and they die by being frightened to death. And they're frightened to death by things that are real, uh, just like the candles going out are real. But nice. don't but don't die, uh, and, and, then, and then they add to that thing that scares people. And it's it's just it's very well done as a sort of gothic horror story with a modern um, you know <laughs> I guess at the time it was modern. It was the British electronics industry trying to beat Japan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not so modern anymore, but because they lost that war. But the uh the the story is extremely well done and it, it's it's got that feeling of, you know, it, is it in the walls? Is it in the is it in the the muck that there was like some rotting fungus walls and stuff that maybe it's the it's the you know carbon monoxide coming off of the fungus right that's going to give people fits or whatever i don't know I, 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 what i remember is it not that they set up certain frequencies and it kind of draws this something out of the stone or is that me misremembering it no yeah. that's almost exactly right the stone is a recording mechanism mm-hmm. and it's a medium it's like a new tape and yeah it's it's S, uh, it's solid state uh, really, <laughs> very <solid laughs> and, and so it's it's nice. I mean, because you think that the house is haunted. Well, they've debunked it, right? It's it's a scientific explanation, Scott explique, but it has recorded things that are actually scary. And then at the end, the, the climax, right. you get that that kind of um, 
new recording. Yeah, well, but no, the old recording. They get the pre-human. Yeah, the oldest, old. oldest, don't they? It's like almost love. Oh yes, but heart. that's not the end. At the end, right, 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 right. no, the, it, it's. I should say it's the opposite. <laughs> Literally, it's the beginning. Right? It's the. Uh, um, it's some kind of terrifying thing. And and if you remade the movie now, I wonder what you would get with up-to-date special effects. But then they, yeah, then they. Open I don't it. think you need to. It's, it's, it works beautifully on its own. I oh, mean, no, no, there I, is a. Yeah, the fact I, that you don't need to remake it uh, doesn't stop Hollywood remaking things. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I was everybody's like, got giant collars in the. Uh, it's 1972, so everybody has giant collars. The trucks look really old, but other than <laughs> no, that, the story is great. No, I was thinking the Roger line. He said, "Why doesn't Hollywood remake bad movies?" <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, Improve them. No, I, I think I, they I, do I as well. That's Quentin well, Tarantino. He remakes bad movies, and he makes them much better, right? Well, he does. Mm-hmm. He, he rips on them. But uh, I, I think you know, if, if you, I got into Stone Tape because of this book I've been working on on on, uh, on haunted digital media, and I was looking uh-huh. at stuff from the '70s and a whole bunch of stories where people tried to imagine digital technology being scary, and it's kind of the. I mean, it's it's interesting. You can kind of put um, uh, Stone Tape at one end and Alien from 1979 on the other which has a very, very scary computer that tries to kill them, and there's all these stories of, of bad oh, computers. Uh, that's basically HAL, though, right? That's just, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. the same thing as HAL. HAL is a good part of it, and like, and like HAL, I mean, HAL makes the structure. He doesn't have a body, he, or he is the body of the spaceship. Um, right. You know, like Demon Seed or something like that. So I got, I got interested in Stone Tape for that. But uh, Jesse, I really love the way you link it uh, here to, uh, to this mm-hmm. Wellster. Um, no, now I'm thinking of the the anti-Japanese bias of Stone Tape to the Chinaman. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but there's also the Yellow Peril is in there. I mean, just a little bobbing head of a China doll. But the, but the reverse though is in the 1890s. Here is Britain subduing China. You know, it's already completed three opium wars and the the Box Rebellion. And it's you know, um, but in the 70s, it's the opposite. It's uh, the the Japanese invading, actually. Yeah. Well, like uh, at least the electronic stores. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is the medium, if you'll forgive the expression, of, of the tale. <laughs> but, but we also get the uh, the use of science, you know, to to decrypt something. If you'll forgive the pun. Um, and we also have um, some sense of of a little generational tension in the Stone Tape because a very familiar feeling to us all. There's different people who get the computers and those who don't. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Although it's kind of fun to watch it work by teletype. That's very exciting. That's how I learned computing, actually, when I was 12 years old. Um, what, else, what else do you see of that connection, then, Jesse? How, how else does it work? Well, it just I, I, I think, you mm. know, the, there's yeah. the staircase, um, which is how people die in the story of the stone tape. Right. But also, there's also the staircase uh, in, in our red room. Right. There's the... The walls in the red room are blowing out the candles. Maybe they're drafty; they're full of holes. The walls in this room are what. It, see, it made me think at the end of the story, the red room. He says, "Until as long as this house of sin endures, right? If you take those walls down, those those stone blocks will not resonate in the proper frequency, right? right. They're just gonna. They're, the data will still be there, but they'll be inaccessible, right? Mm-hmm. And." It's not that there's nothing there because the people, you know, I think there was a good time gal or something in, at the local bar who was talking about that house and how it's haunted and nobody goes in there. And uh-huh. there was a guy who, who, you know, there's like three or four people who are outside the house itself who had stories about how it's dangerous and they made up stuff about what was going on in there, whether they went in there or not. Mm. But 
people did die in there. And it, there is a legitimate something to it, but their interpretation is wrong as to they thought it was. In one way, I was thinking that there's a, a great H.P. Lovecraft story in which it's called The Crawling Chaos, in which mm. um, a man is drugged with opium in some disease-plagued place, and he goes into sort of a dream state, and he wakes up in a room, and he can look out the windows to see the world. Well, if you look at the story very carefully, it's like that room is shaped like a head, and he's in his own head, and he looks out through the windows, and he sees the world, and the world is his body. So the guy losing his own uh, he loses in his his himself in his own head and everything that happened subsequently could be interpreted as a uh as his body being suffering the disease of whatever it is and the opium etc so it's being lost in your own head sort of thing and i was thinking the red room is kind of like he brought the ghost into the room with him it's in his head the ghost isn't out there it's in you and literally, ghosts are spirits, and you've got a spirit in you, et cetera, et cetera, like that. Does that make a, sense? It is a red room. Why is it red? <laughs> well, blood is red. Uh, the I think it's just, literally, red. I think that's just, it's more spooky. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's just me being a bit too naive about uh, how good of a writer or how much authors actually think about all this stuff and how much it's, you know, in the foreground or in right. the background. I think right. the red room is just a great name for a, a haunted room. It's pretty good. There's a an illustration I found uh, on the web of um, for the book or for the story, and it had uh, a fireplace, and uh, the word "red" was written in the flames, and oh, cool. "room" was written in the grill at the bottom of it. Um, so again, it does echo fire, which we keep seeing in the story. Yep. And and losing fire is when the darkness overwhelms him at the end. In fact, he's like in a prison, right? Because he's trying to reach the grate to get into the fire, to relight the candle, and it goes away. It's a really sad, dramatic moment. So, I mean, there's the fire. I mean, again, I, I wish Eric were here, because he, he could really have fun with a nice Freudian reading. You know, we go through this slick tunnel to get into the red room, <laughs> and yeah. then, but, I mean, and then that's he what gets reborn at the end, right? With that, new that's what I was kind of thinking about with, when you said alien and the the the, the, mm-hmm. the in alien the, the computer's called mother and okay. they go into this kind of like womb like kind of thing and become completely surrounded on that's all true. sides by mother and then talk about that so yep. yes that kind of stuff and I think that's all red in there is it or is it blue I think I can't even remember it's now. beige but, oh it's beige which is really hard no because I was just thinking all the lights on the room and that they, they, they that's, bring where, the, that's where that's where Ash the android comes in and spurts sperm everywhere I mean it's yeah. Just, <laughs> um, it's, it's a wonder. It's a wonder. I guess that's it's, true. It's, 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 it's the mother. It's the two computers coming together there in that. Uh, in that. Yeah, and don't forget the opening shot, which is of a haunted castle in space. Mm. You know, it's it's the opposite of Star Wars. You know, well, I mean, that is exactly what Alien was going for. It was going for yep. that same gothic slasher kind of yep. horror, but as a, a science fiction. So yes, having a having a all of that kind of stuff in there is. is <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm 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 curious. You know. I've been I've been looking at this from the the science the science hero angle. Um, you know, this is a kind of gothic explique. But then I wonder, all right, what's you know, if we can tease this out, what's what's the gothic reading of this story? You know, you've got these three decrepit people that are associated with the house. I mean, that's that's their job. That's uh, we have the sense of sin, 
um, we have, you know, these kind of Freudian rooms um, and Freudian spaces in the house. I mean, what, but we don't get a lot of backstory, which I find fascinating. This is a great in Medea Res story. You know, we're thrown into it right away. Yeah, like mm-hmm. he stands up with a drink in his hand. It's like, is he doing this because he's drunk? Or like, it's our own choosing. Like, what, yeah. what are they talking about? So you've got an yeah. open mind. Go in there. Yes. And on this night of all nights, like what happened a year ago yeah. or what happened 20 years ago? Or like, what is that night of all nights? Those lines are repeated. All, it's not exactly three times, but there's like three, the three of those old people always say like the same line over and over again, right? It's your own choosing. And then uh, this night of all nights, it's like... It's like they're casting a spell. Yeah. Yes. I, I, that's why yes, I, I come to the conclusion he, he is not the new lord. He is very much an investigator. It's like that's what I came here for. This on this night of all nights, that's why I'm here. I don't think it's. Yeah. I don't. I don't think he's the it's, new lord or anything. I think he's just a. Well, he's just he's just a journalist <laughs> from all. The maybe universe. it's a really big castle. Maybe he's been sleeping in a different room. We we well, we don't know exactly what's going on, but why are they letting him in there? He must have got permission well, that's, well, why, from that's, the... That's why I think he is the next owner. I think he's sitting there with his... The people who have been the caretakers, and he's coming in, whether he's just bought it, whether he's a, you know, the next duke or whatever. It's, it, I think mm-hmm. it is his house, and I think he's... he's. I don't think they're not the kind of social... Uh, of the same social strata. They wouldn't have met down the pub and said, here, I'm going to show you a, you know, a ghost yeah. room. I think he's there as the new owner, whether, you know, a new duke or whatever. And they're talking about this, this, this thing, and he's saying, no, it's all in the mind. Uh, it's not. It's not even like he's a writer, or a, you know, he, he doesn't. He's not a journalist. Well, you don't he know. I mean, notes. that's what I do love about it. So you mention it that it is. It's all left open. I love writers who leave so much up to uh, up to you know how you interpret things. Mm-hmm. I know I've, I've read a lot of Christopher Priest. He's a friend of mine now. Mm-hmm. I, I did the Prestige, oh. and I just recently because he's got a film offer on the Glamour. I read that and his new one, The Adjacent. And what I love about his books is that they're so left open. I think it's one reason why he's not as popular as he he could be. Uh, There is so much at the end of it, the interpretation of what happened, is almost entirely left up to you. Did it happen or didn't it happen? I mean, what did happen? Mm. Uh, We're going to talk about the prestige in an upcoming podcast. Very excited. Good book. Good book. Yeah, Uh, but at the end he says you know, where am I? I seem to remember you, yet I cannot remember who you are. He's saying that to the old people. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's... uh, I'm, I'm not sure he does know them. I think he is. I don't think he has had a lot of contact with these people before. Anyway. No, I don't think yeah. so. I think you're right. I think he's just met them, uh, you know, recently. It's great that we can do some Gandalf. You notice that his, not just his head is bloody, but also his lips. And I, that was an I interesting just, touch, yeah. Why, is it, why are his lips bloody? Was he gushing out blood for some reason? Or is it just the redness? Of the lips is is like uh, ooh I'm not I'm starting to get chills now. I thought he just bashed his face. That's yeah, I guess. And but maybe he hurt his head, which is why he's a little disoriented. The, the thing is, is this is you know this is not a casual writer. He doesn't write words down higgledy piggledy, right? He knows what he's doing. He's a master. So whenever he puts things in, it's a choice. It's a choice to to do something, and it it is this. Like, uh, Simon, I think you read a story, um, The Door in the Wall. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, it's a great story. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's so open, you can't tell what. Yeah. 
there's no firm ground. God, right. It's a sad story. But this uh, is not open. It says I, I was because stu- it says here I stumbled around until I bashed until there was a, 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 a heavy blow at last on my forehead and a horrible sensation of falling. Uh, and then he blanks out. And then it says. But notice we, it doesn't say he hit the wall. No, it says a heavy blow at last on my forehead. So that's right. where the blood on his forehead. Something hit him. And then he fell down, and then there was blood on your it. forehead and lips. So then he hit his. He then and he fell down. He hit his face. So he hit his lips and stuff like that. You're what you're doing is trying to find all of like the oh you're saying oh he's so open and stuff like this. And I'm just I I, and I'm just demonstrating that it doesn't have to be open. There is a perfectly rational explanation for the blood on the, the forehead and on of the. Of course there is. He he he, he did that, and it was on So you're saying, oh, it's all open, and it is open in a way. But I'm just trying to I'm just trying to close down that. Um, well, I'm interested. Why, why didn't they the Why didn't they just say there was blood on his face? Why Why the forehead right. and lips? Because it, we've it just had the detail. There was a heavy blow on his forehead, and then he fell down, and you know, and he remembers no more. So he has to have had another. Uh, another bash on his head, or at least another injury. Otherwise, he would have. There was a heavy blow on my forehead, and I remember no more. But it's not that there was a blow on his forehead, and then a sensation of falling, frantic effort to repeat my footage, and then I remember no more. So there must have been a different injury to knock himself out that second time. That's the mm-hmm. blood on his lips when he smacked his face off the floor. Let me ask you this. Remember, they've never been in the room before, right? That's what the that's what they say. We never go there. Mm. We've never been in there. Now, I assume that they mean at night. Yes. Right? Yeah. I assume that that's what they mean. Because he also said that the, they had laid out the room for him, right. which right. he thought was a nice touch, the and fire. considering how, how begrudging he was of them at the beginning, that sort of belies his, his begrudgment. Uh, well, they they <laughs> actually light yeah. a fire, which is almost ironic. That's right. They, they set the fire. They didn't light it, but right. They, right. Yeah, they, they kindled the fire for him. You know, there's a bed spread or whatever. It's all nice. It's ready for him to go. But also, at the end of the story, he's lying in another room how did they get? Uh, see, they went in there and they say we found you. But he fell out of the room. He's in the corridor. He's not actually. Yeah. yeah, and he's he's paralleling the the Duke, mm-hmm. right? And it was mm-hmm. at dawn. Yeah, it was at dawn, so it was daylight. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not so much that we could say that he is the Duke, um, and he's re- re- repeating history in sort of a loop sort of thing, but it is it's curious that he managed to get out and hurt himself but not kill himself by falling down those stairs. Well, you wonder, and, well he could have hit almost anything. Okay, he keeps bumping into but the But I, I just like the way it, it, it's not I hit my head, it's a blow hit me. Right? Yeah. It's, mm. it's, yeah, it's really it's nice. Not, it's not as closed off as Luke is saying. No, he says, I, I have a vague memory of battering myself thus to and fro in the darkness. It was him. It was purely him. And, 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 but the last thing, of a heavy I, blow. Of a heavy I, blow at last upon my forehead. Which could have been him but he is or somebody just, hitting him with a stick. I understand the point that you're bringing out here, and you're trying to make it. Oh, it could be something like this, and that is what makes the writing so obvious. But I think if then, if we're looking at the writing that uh, in that much depth, we've got to see that H.G. Wells is a genius writer because he doesn't leave anything to chance. Everything is exactly all of That's everything that I've ever read by him, or ninety like, percent mm-hmm. of everything that I've read by him is worked out to this logical degree. I was, I was doing my own rewrite of the, um, of the uh, War of the Worlds from the point of view of the aliens, and I was kind of like planning oh, nice. out 
I was planning out what what the aliens would see in this battle when they go up to the the ford of the Thames, you know, there's a and when yeah. they go up to Weybridge there. And it all works out. It's all plotted out perfectly. I was like, "Oh, so I can do this from the other point of view because logically it makes sense. All of the stuff is there in the right place, even though it's told from one guy who's running and dumping into rivers and all that kind of stuff. It still makes sense." And it, I don't think it's then a uh, uh, you know, a coincidence that H.G. Wells was one of the first kind of, you know, like the, the board, not board game, but, you know, the war games where you roll right. dice and move stuff right. around. He Published wrote some of the early war, rules. war games, I think it was called. Or yeah. Yeah. Little, little, wars. Wars. little Wars. Little Wars. Yeah, Little Wars. Um, so he was he is the kind of guy who can plan out action. Right. I need to get this person from here to there. And he right. and again, you say, oh, it's like this and mysterious. Sure. He he's put in the bare minimum of what needs to do to knock somebody out and to make stuff... Of course, he's done it in language where, at night, a heavy blow at last upon my forehead because he's battering himself to and fro, doesn't where it comes from. But in the cold light of day, he's actually explaining, yeah, there's two, there's two injuries here, blood on the forehead and on lips. Um, and we know where the blow, blow on the forehead comes from, and the, other, the blow on the lips is from the other one. I don't, yeah, don't want to keep pressing this home, but I think it's... you know, I, I think H.G. Wells is... He knows exactly what he's doing here. Um, he has he has the entire night planned out from both points of view, and then is choosing the point of view, which point of view to take it from. I'll, I'll help you. Yeah. I'll help you. I'll add to your argument. Um, What's that? The, the blood and lips first can simply be biting your tongue. Um, could be. And, could be. Oh yes, uh, and falling. Yes. But the other is um, I, the the way you I totally agree about about Wells as craftsman, um, incredibly meticulous. But the that's that that, that phrase. Um, where did it go? The old man is looking at his face, um, you know, because he, he really wants to see this. And he says, we found you at, actually, we don't know which old man it is. That's actually a weird slip. But we found you at dawn and there was blood on your forehead and lips. And I have to wonder if that's not just a detail that he would relish. You know, if he's, if he's into this whole, you know, house of sin and horror and all that, that, you know, he says this. It's not the third person narrator. Or I'm mm. the first person narrator. It's this guy because he's the kind of thing he would lick his lips over this kind of detail, right? You know, he would mm-hmm. really want to see that. Um, you know, he and if, it, if you, it almost changes out of the first person. It's a first person story, but it almost ends that way. It ends because it, it the the last lines are the old man, not the right. narrator, right? It changes to that outer point of view well it's kind of second person because it's like even it is it is even as you say fear itself yeah he's actually talking to the first person so almost mm-hmm. just a second person narrative right not even third person if you know mm-hmm. yeah but he doesn't manage to convince them you know he, no, no, he mishears it yeah i think that's the point i think he comes in and says that 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 is all in the mind but you're yeah. never going to defeat the prejudice of the uh, you know the the um What's the word? You know, the legend in the mind of the older people that, you know, it, there is something there. Global warming is a fake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he admits early on, he says, you know, yes, the room is haunted, but it's haunted by your fear, our fear. Yeah, it's only haunted when someone who is haunted goes into it. Yeah. Someone who's mentally haunted. And he totally is. I mean, the way he describes everything, it's, it's, he's bringing, I mean, he's bringing that haunting. Every person is is haunted in that mm. opening, and I I love how little we how little information we have at the beginning, and as we go, we actually are backfilling on like information as to mm-hmm. how how he got there, uh, what, what room he was in, 
what circumstances led him. We don't even know the name if he's in a castle or not until quite mm-hmm. quite deep into the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that, that is something I think that keeps you in a story. That is that is why you keep going with the story. Sometimes you want to know more about where we yeah. are, what we're doing, and you're hoping something is going to be revealed, something more dramatic perhaps than is in the end. Yes, it reminds me of uh, Gene Wolfe, uh, the American writer who who hates exposition and just constantly puts you in this imidae res feeling and you know you have to back and fill yourself to do all the work there's almost no exposition in the story at all mm-hmm. there doesn't need to be uh, I think they just need to say but the duke's wife and you're like right. oh what was that what did she do to get to deserve that scare what do you know that kind of stuff you, well it's you funny know. I mean this is a hundred arguably 140 years into the gothic and all you have to do is just put these markers out there you know you don't mm. need to explain them you know, uh, Duke's wife, sure, Gar. You know, someone else is in this room beforehand. Ah, I know what that means. You know, it's mm. you know, scary room. Okay, you know, we don't. You know, what, in my research for this story, I, I, I looked far and wide for you know any criticism and that sort of thing, and the only thing I could find was um, a 1950 uh, magazine review of uh, of a book about Henry James and and um, Wells. Wells and James had a uh, a rivalry, friendship, um, enmity thing going on about what fiction was for and what what it was about. Uh, you know, what, who uh, Wells wrote a book that kind of made fun of James. Um, I think it's called Boone, B O O N. Hmm. And amongst the <laughs> the in the review, it was quite funny because it was written in the fifties, yeah. but it said. Um, <laughs> just a nice little wrap-up line at the end of the review. It said, and of course, we all know who won this. Wells' books are completely forgotten. It's like, uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> see, Henry James isn't forgotten either, right? But uh, amongst people I know, you know, uh, Wells is looming large. Mm. Yeah. And James is almost completely forgotten. And he's not forgotten, you know, how many people even clamoring Hollywood for yet another War of the Worlds movie? Exactly. Oh, and we want another Time Machine, because Time Machine is still, you know, people still want these, and the Invisible Man just keeps coming back and back again. You know. Yeah. So, these judgments of, you know, what what history will judge is are hard to, hard to argue unless you can, you know, look back at all of history. But it seems to me that, I think The Turn of the Screw is a masterpiece. I think it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it doesn't do the same kind of job that the well see, he, he seems to have an agenda and his agenda is shine light on human foibles and human civilization human history um and do that using whatever medium because he he doesn't just stick to science fiction this is a very early story for him but it's it's a gothic story that sort of does the job of a lot of uh, of his other stuff, which is, you know, there is a way of looking at human activity and and making interesting conclusions that are not based on superstition. And well, if you've uh, it, when you read the the time machine, you could you, you, there was actually part of the time machine was taken out because it was considered too horrific and because it was like looking at the future evolution of humans, like until we're like brainless rabbits being fed by being fed on, you know. Jellyfish and stuff like that. You're talking it's, about it's, chronic uh, Argonauts? Is that what you're talking about? No, 
in the time machine there was in the in the serialized version of the time machine there was a section which was deemed too controversial and too horrific to be included in the first printings of the as, as a novel as a stand, as a full novel and it's only recently now been put back in, if you know what I mean, like in the new printings. It's because mm-hmm. he keeps going further and further ahead. So it's like near the end of the book, he goes so far to the to the future that the sun is stationary in the sky and humans have devolved or evolved into nothing more than these like little rabbit things with with uh, with no brains that these jellyfish things eat. And he's saying that's what humanity is going to be in the future. And then he comes back through to the modern, like, well, to the, not modern day, but to the, uh, you know, the time of the writing again, back to the Victorian England again. Um, and, and you can see what again, he's doing no, there. No, that guy has no name, right? This, this yeah, is curious. In this story, nobody has a name. In that story, nobody has a name. Well, in the beginning yeah, of Time Machine, they, the they all have job titles, right? There's, there's right. the yeah, journalist. journalist. I love that. Yeah, in, the, in War, War of the Walls, it's the same thing. He's just, he's just, I'm the journalist from the paper, and then his brother is just, my brother did this, my brother did that. Are the two main characters in the in the War of the World? Well, and, and the artillery man. I mean, his wife, which is the last mm-hmm. line of the, sto- of the story. You know, he doesn't know. Um, we don't know her name. Um, it's not the last line. Of the story, it's the last line of the, of the second to last chapter. Yeah. The end of the yeah. action. Uh, no, it's true. There's there's this. Um, well, again, this is something I hadn't thought about this, but this is really uh, a Gene Wolfe um, trait too, where he likes to have minimal information going into stories, especially in the short stories. Um, hadn't thought about the Wells Wolf connection before. Um, Not having everything explicated makes it much more interesting if if you bring a lot of stuff to it. I think, but if if you're a beginning reader, you know the uh, the ex- you know, the complete description of people's armor and mm-hmm. uh, helmets and mustaches and uh, such um, seems to be what people want. Well, there's a, there's no, a wonderful... It, Go ahead. Go ahead. So, okay. I was just going to say, Gene Wolfe does do that. There's a, one of my favorite parts in the... In the, uh, shadow, in the uh, what's it called? The Torturers... What was the first one in the... Shadow, shadow of the Torturer. Or whatever the first... Yeah, in the first book in the of the book in the New Sun, he describes something in in excruciating detail. This mural that someone's looking at, and if you yes. actually think about what he's describing, he's describing yes. the very famous photo of Buzz Aldrin on the moon, or one of right. the Apollo astronauts on the moon. And you're like, oh yeah, he's a grey armor in a no, he's got this white armor with a, a, a completely and the flag is stiff. The flag is curious. Yeah, the flag stiff. is stiff, and he's in a grey desert and all that kind of stuff. And you're just like, well, that, yeah. that's the moon. People walk in the moon, and then you realize that it's all all of the action is set in a in a spaceport, and you know it's confirmed right. later on when he flies away. But like, if you the, he does have a huge amount of description, but the description the people there don't know what they're describing, and you've got to piece together the right. the real backstory from that. Well, description. for both, on the one hand, there's always the unreliable narrator. I mean, and the, always unreliable, and then on top of that he's playing tricks on you. He's always like, you know, winking and trying to, yeah. the descriptions always have that possible, you know, trap door. Um, no, I agree. But that's I, what this story feels like as well. This red room story feels like that in, in a similar way. Like he says, Oh, I saw this and I saw that and I saw that. And I was like, well, how much of that is actually important? And yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder, it's interesting to think he was, um, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful book on comics called, uh, understanding comics by Scott McCloud. Have you guys seen this? I've heard Eric talk about it. I haven't read it myself. I I really recommend it if you if you haven't. He's uh McLeod's actually a comics creator. He created a really nice series called Zot for a while. 
uh, Understanding Comics is a graphic novel textbook on how to understand comics. And I've taught it before. It's a really good book. Uh, but he has this really neat idea in the middle of it where he talks about why very simple-looking uh, characters become iconic and become very popular. So he mentions like Hello Kitty or the smiley face. And he has this great two-page spread, which I can't show you, of course, because this is audio, where he, he has a continuum of from the most simple to the most complex visual representation. And the most complex, you think about, say, photorealist painting, or you think about um, impressionist art. We can be impressed by them, but we can't identify with the characters because they are too good at being defined. So they're obviously not us. But if you look at a really, really simple drawing, it's easy to put yourself in Hello Kitty's shoes or a simple smiley face or Mickey Mouse because there's no detail to prevent you from identifying with it. I mean, just as a sidebar, I think that's part of the appeal of the Twilight books because the, <laughs> because Bella is so badly drawn, so badly yeah. realized, <laughs> anyone can step into her shoes. So, you know, when you... That's when you Tintin look, as well. I've heard that about Tintin. Yeah. That his, his face is... Uh, is, is right. such a simple, like he's the simplest character in the whole thing because you're not meant to yes. identify with the other ones. Anyway, carry on. And, and, and unlike Captain Haddock, he doesn't have any real backstory that matters. You know, he's just mm. this universal guy who's either eight or 28 years old, right? He's, he's Dorothy uh, as a boy. Mm-hmm. He's got the little sidekick dog, right? So look at all these all and these he's a journalist characters. as well, so he can be anything. There you go. But you're also the gun, right? I mean, all, all, these, all these characters in Wells have that not all of them. I mean, but in stories like this, they have this this openness, this blankness that you can be invited into. And I, I think for a story like this, for a, a man whose life is devoted to the cause of science, I mean, I mean, even remember in um, Things to Come, where the world gets run by what's it called, the Council of Science, the Brotherhood of Science. Um, I think I think he's inviting you to take that scientific position, and I, I think that's I think I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but I think that's a very powerful effect of the text. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.